Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and every episode I host a conversation with someone about their deepest values, the decisions they've made, and how we navigate the intense levels of disagreement and difference in our society. Sacred is really about getting beneath the surface to the people behind the positions, trying to listen well, not be quite so quick to put people in boxes of in and out, enemy or friend, right or wrong. The hope is that we can create space for our guests and maybe even you as listeners to reflect on what they believe, how they've lived, and not in what seems to be the only two options nowadays, a very adversarial, highly defended gotcha world of current affairs, or in the polished, soundbite glossiness of book or project promotion. Hopefully the sacred is a space for honest, messy, human conversations. Like every podcast, we're always looking for new listeners. So if you find what we do at all helpful or thought-provoking, please do take a moment to send an episode to a friend, leave us a review, or give us a glowing rating on your podcast platform. Just remember, we don't make you listen to adverts, so you might want to show us a little love in this way. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Suzanne Moore. Suzanne is a journalist and columnist who was for many years at The Guardian, but has also written for The Mail on Sunday, Marxism Today, and now writes for The Telegraph. We spoke about her rebellious youth, her atheism, how she understands what the role of a journalist is, and briefly about her departure from The Guardian last year. We had, I think, a really great conversation about the difference between the thoughtful and open and warm woman that I had a conversation with and her rather more sharp-elbowed adversarial public presence, her social media tone. Because frankly, I went into this interview a bit nervous about who I was going to meet. And as almost always happens, my impression changed over the course of the conversation. I was reminded again how much more complex, how much more interesting almost everyone seems when we're off those platforms that flatten and simplify and amplify our differences and when we take the time to go beneath the surface. I really hope you enjoy listening. Suzanne, I'm going to jump us straight into the deep end, which given that we've only met so far through dealing with technical challenges is obviously a bit of an acceleration relationally. Uh, So feel free to take this wherever you like. But uh, the kind of heart of this podcast is trying to get people with a public voice to hopefully give them an opportunity to reflect a bit more deeply, to pull back a bit from the cut and thrust of the day-to-day issues and Mm. um, help listeners understand where they're coming from, what's formed them, what their values are, what are the big ideas that have shaped them. Um, And this concept of sacred, I like because it's not sort of worn out by overuse. But I don't mean anything necessarily religious about it. It's something, you know, deep in us, we feel that when someone transgresses us, uh, you know, if someone gave us lots of money to give it up, we'd feel morally compromised. And it can be anything, having had uh, not loads of time to reflect on it. What comes up for you, or you can challenge me on it if you like. Well, I agree with you. I quite like the concept. It doesn't... um... It doesn't upset me. I, I don't feel it has to be religious. Um, it is, I think, what you hold dear. And just to be asked that question is is a big challenge, I think. Just to say to yourself, what are the things 
that really mattered to me. And I mean, obviously what first comes to mind, I should imagine for most people, um, are their kids, their family, their immediate loved ones, you know, this is, and love, you know, just the value of love and what that is in your life. And then it makes me think about different kinds of love because we tend always to value romantic love above other kinds of love. And I would question that for me, for women and in my own life. I think there's many different kinds of love. I hold friendship very sacred. I hold um, the bonds that you make sometimes, not forever, but say even in work sacred um spontaneous kind of love that can happen between people um and then david bowie (laughs) i just realized i mean if i haven't got over it that he's died i don't sort of accept he's died and i thought out of everything uh that i hold sacred I've got to have David Bowie in there somewhere, right? You know, there is a theory and it's sort of silly, but it was that everything started to go badly wrong when he died from Trump to Brexit and everything. But it was somehow him holding the threads of the universe together. Now, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not saying I believe it, but there is, but there's evidence. <laughs> Because things did go bad after he died. Anyway. That's um, fabulous. So, um, but in talking about David Bowie, it made me realise, and I think the pandemic has made us really think about this sacred stuff because it clearly isn't um, what matters to people is, uh, is often not material. Yeah, I mean, that has really, so many people have said to me, you know what, I don't, I mean, if if you have certain material things do matter a lot, for instance, if, if you have small children and no outside space, this year has been absolutely terrible. I, I know that for my own, my own daughters, but so many people have said, you know, what matters is seeing my friends, seeing people, you know, the things that we've missed this year. show us don't they really what what matters it's really good I think to just locate public figures in the particularity of where they've come from to remember that there are people behind positions um and so I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood and particularly really big ideas political ideas philosophical ideas religious ideas that were sort of in the air that you think have shaped you for better or worse okay um well I uh... I can't I can't exactly explain it because I think it's quite a common fantasy, but I always really hoped that I would be told at some stage that I'd been adopted because I didn't um belong where I was. And actually my mother was adopted, so that wasn't such a weird conversation to have. But I wasn't adopted and <laughs> wasn't adopted. I was born in Ipswich. I hated it. I didn't fit in. It was I don't know where my rebelliousness came from exactly. Well, I, well, I, my mother was rebellious. My, I, my mother was of a generation who was really trying to escape, and her way to escape was 
through men, you know, getting married and then hoping that that would be okay and then that not being okay and then marrying someone else or having a, another boyfriend. And I could see when I look at my mother's life that she was trying sort of to get away and that was the only way that she could get away. Um, and I decided very, very young that that would not be the way that I got away. Um, I, I think I would... I can't remember making this decision, but I thought I shall never be financially dependent on on anybody, uh, and I haven't been. Uh, so, the the political ideas when I was growing up were my family were working class Tories and um, very and monarchists. Um, they voted Tory in that way that that's just what you do, rather than thinking about it I think and once I got to school once I got to uh, start to read um I just rejected everything I mean like everything <laughs> um I wouldn't sing hymns I wouldn't sing the national anthem and I was at a girls school where you were meant to do those things I just really didn't want to be told what to do at all um and it's funny, isn't it? Because some people, when you talk about political formation or even just formation of personality, and I, and I, long before I was a journalist, I worked with children in care, and I used to think that um, people are formed very young, actually. I think maybe if you can get to somebody before 14, you can intervene. Um, but I would say that I was pretty much formed that young and remain at heart about 14 <laughs> in, in certain ways you know in that you know screw you you are not telling me what to do and I will walk out of this classroom I will not come back to school I will not work for you this stupid newspaper you know I still I still have that kind of teenage rebellion thing going on in me which actually um this might um, you know, people might not want to know about this, but I will talk about it. Going through the menopause was a liberation because I could be as teenage again because all the responsibilities of reproduction, children, I've done that and that bit of me no longer matters. And now I can be exactly as I was as a teenager. And that's not a very... <laughs> You, there's a there's a uh, there's a liberation in aging i like that book ending of two teenager seasons you said um that hymns were one of the things that you uh rebelled against at school and mm. you're, you've been very public about your atheism was mm. there any sort of active faith in your family was it just something in the background at school and what were, what were those initial encounters with religion like they weren't bad to be honest, I'd say my grandparents who really brought me up because my mother was always off doing her crazy stuff um, was, uh, I would say that my grandparents were solidly sort of Church of England. It, and I mean, they didn't go to the church, I don't think much, but I would say they absolutely did live their Christian values. I, I would say they did. And um, even in terms of adopting my mum uh, and being very honest about it, they never she never didn't know she was adopted 
which I think was quite something at the time because I think it was a bit of a secret for some people. Um, so my experience of of them as people were people who were um, good people, what I would call good, decent people. Uh, but my the organised religion uh, that uh, we were meant to sort of adhere to at school, um, uh, you know, what, yeah, Queen and Country and hymns was something that no, I did not, didn't did not speak to me, but also you know I was. In terms of thinking about consciousness and the universe and connection and stuff, I mean, I was taking lots of drugs. And drugs are, like it or not, and people don't like it, but psychedelic drugs in particular will make you feel that there is something that connects us all to each other and to the universe and to nature. I I uh, have quite an eclectic set of Twitter followers. A significant chunk are... Um, Anglican vicars and um, Christians of all different stripes and people of other religions. And then a significant chunk are people interested in psychedelics for this exact reason that I find mm. a very uh, intriguing overlap between a particular kind of openness to something beyond yourself. Mm. I think I think sometimes people think I'm bonkers because of straddling multiple words, worlds, but particularly this one. Mm. Um do, do you mind if so? I'm going to do something which feels often feels like dropping the G bomb, which is use the mm. God word, and mm. I do do it carefully because you can sort of dance around the edges of religion, but at the heart of it is a concept that people have often quite a lot of emotional stuff around. Do you think mm. you ever believed in God? Did you lose a faith in God? Do you still believe in something? When did the sort of atheist identity become something that you owned? Um. No, I don't think I ever believed or ever will believe. I think it's funny that the actual word God, because I wish people would, in fact, talk about it in a more honest way, because um, I have explored various... Um, I did a course, for instance, in existential therapy, um, and lots of people think existentialism is always anti-religion but of course some of the key existentialists did believe in God so and I think that people get very muddled because they don't want to use the word God so a lot of new age type people use the word energy or something um, they use a word that really might as well be God as far as I'm concerned so um, I think the question that you have to ask is is there energy in the universe that has intentionality and if you think it does have intentionality then you're really talking about God I don't think it does I am um sort of quite an old-fashioned kind of existentialist I guess I believe we were we're thrown here um we're not here for long um and I like is I think it's it is it Richard Holloway I think it is I'm not sure who says something like you know well quite a few philosophers actually that we, we that we must live as if we believe in God as if there is a heaven and a hell we must live 
that way, even knowing that's not to be true, i.e., you know, live a good life, be good to other people, uh, as though you may be judged, but knowing that that's just like made-up stories. But, But I'm also someone who's very, very moved often by um, religious ritual. I I believe very much in ritual, actually, which is hard to sort of square (laughs) with not believing in God. But when I see, you know, um, I see at the moment in society that we don't have enough rituals and we have to make our own sometimes for people who, you know, I'd like there to be in uh, rites of passage ritual for teenagers. I'd like there to be rituals for menopause. You know, I do you know what I mean? I'd like. I think. I think rituals are a really important part. I come from a not very ritual laden tradition of Christianity, and like many people, as I follow the cliched path, have been uh, rediscovering what the church calls the um, the liturgical year. And that really mm-hmm. does that. It gives a sense of the things that happen at different points in the year mm-hmm. that you share together and saints days and festivals and periods of mourning and grief and just like mm-hmm. sitting with suffering before these big periods of celebration. And yeah, it, it but it, it's, it's, you know, it's really hard to like sit in the darkness in Advent in solidarity with the suffering or the same in Lent when everyone's rushed ahead into Christmas or has rushed ahead into Easter. Mm, mm. Do you think there's something about how we use time and space that our society has flattened? Um, I want yeah, to... that's a good way to put it, actually, yeah. I agree with you. Um, I have a, a, a half-baked theory that I wanted to run by you because I have been reading a lot of what you've been writing and I'm interested in where the left is. And... Oh, God. This is this is this is worse than the, than the God question already. <laughs> we can just you know it's a safe space. We can feel our way. But uh, it genuinely, you know, I feel I feel and I I deliberately speak to a lot of different people on this podcast. They sit in all different parts of the different political spectrums, different places on what's happening with identity and um, gender and sexuality and religion, and, and try and just like listen and ponder about it. But they're definitely. And you can frame this in a negative way or a positive way. There's definitely a moment on the left which feels very concerned with um, with purity. And the kind of positive way of framing it is a very deep awareness of injustice and historic injustice and um, the ways we unconsciously perpetuate injustice against others. And I think a really laudable and right desire to raise awareness of that And the negative way of framing it, and these are both true, I think, in different places, (laughs) negative way of framing that is a kind of puritanical finger pointing where injustice exists in someone else. And the way to build justice is to change thinking and language and seeing a strong correlation between thinking and language and kind of material conditions and it's you know it's a very interesting very complex moment with we're not even really sure what's going on at the moment I think but as a as a Christian coming to it it looks to me a little bit like what you've got is an awareness of in Christian words sin of brokenness of our own capacities for self-delusion and 
idolatry. These are all very heavy religious words, but you all understand mm-hmm. them. And, and basically the kind of human brokenness that most religions start from, as opposed to the kind of Whiggish, some elements of the sort of liberal understanding that we're all, you know, leading to ever and ever upwards progress. But what's missing is the next bit that you find in religion, which is confession and absolution and forgiveness and redemption and that ability to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that make any sense? I'm just sort of sitting with that thought. I'd love to hear what it brings up for you. It makes absolute sense to me because I don't understand why anybody... um, gets involved in politics or rights or does the sort of things I I do unless they want to um, change people's minds. And then we have to ask, how do you change people's minds? And we have to understand that people are really complicated and hold many contradictory positions within themselves. I do. Most people I know do. I'm quite capable of sort of thinking opposite things at the same time you know and and struggling with that so um the kind of purity spiral that the left is in at the moment is deeply unattractive if you want to change someone's mind for a start how people behave to each other on the left is terrible (laughs) I mean if you were just sort of looking at twitter um and you see the internal feuding and fighting, even within like a certain part of the Labour Party, you you don't think to yourself, wow, these people, they really want to like, you know, bring socialism to the world. You just think, God, these people hate each other much more than they hate the government. And they don't even know how to behave sort of decently to people. And it's always been like that on the left for me. I mean, it is you know, it is the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front, that stuff. But um, I guess we've got to be careful because it is true. The first thing you said about people really wanting now to see injustice. Um, well, I mean, actually, they are seeing injustice and they want to signal to everybody that they're seeing this injustice. And that's a good thing, right? We've got to say that's a good thing. But I do think that when I think about the changes in my lifetime that there have been and the people I know who I consider to be heroic about making those changes, that a lot of activism is actually day-to-day, hard, boring work. It's not glamorous. No, people don't really notice. No one says brilliant to you every day. Um And this new kind of, um, and it is driven a lot by social media, of just signalling that, you know, Black Lives Matter by clicking something, but not really actually changing your own behaviour very much, is, is, um, uh, is, as people say the word all the time, very problematic. Um, I think it's, I just don't think we should fool ourselves about what we're doing, you know, when we do it. You wrote um, a, a lovely piece about hope last year and you said, uh, to read my Bible brackets, James Baldwin, which made me laugh because I just love James Baldwin. And I do think he's one of the people who who gets this, right? That his 
his understanding of how humans work, he was working against so many types of injustice and marginalization and yet continued to hold a hopefulness about the possibility of reconciliation and this incredible empathy for those in the groups that had consciously or unconsciously sort of perpetuated such terrible injustice against black people and gay men. Yeah. yeah. And that feels to me like when I I have to go back and read him to give myself hope and, and also, you know, and Jesus on turning the other cheek and loving your enemy that James Baldwin drew so strongly from in his very unique way um, to give me hope because it does feel like a moment when the generosity to try and understand someone else's position or the restraint not to throw an insult is not something that we are actively building or working on as a sort of set of social virtues. Is that a Mm. fair assessment? And is there anything you think would help us? No, I think I think it's a pretty fair assessment. I think, and I think that, yeah. Again, I don't I don't want to blame everything on social media and technology, but everybody is in transmit mode, and and very few people are in receive mode. Um, and um, as a, as a yeah, as a journalist, but when uh, a few years ago I decided to go and. I'd always been interested in therapy and to um, start training. Um, I I haven't finished it. I didn't finish it, by the way. But I, but I did a couple of years. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things that you learn is how we just don't listen to each other. I mean, we we actually really don't. <laughs> uh, the, one of the first exercises that you do. Uh, well, you start off and you listen to someone else for five minutes and you sit still and listen to someone for five minutes. And that was extremely difficult to do. And then you build up to 10, maybe 15, whatever. Um, actually listening. And everybody claims to be listening, but I think listening is kind of key to this. Not like, and I say this as someone who puts out my opinion, so uh, you know, it probably sounds maybe counterintuitive, but I only can write because I listen. Uh, every everything I don't hang around Westminster hearing politicians speak. I don't. That doesn't like give me ideas. What gives me ideas is hearing people talking on the bus or whatever. Um, but. It, it, and it's such cliche. I, maybe I'm just being cliche, but if we watch what public debate is, whether it's in the House of Commons, whether it's Piers Morgan yelling, or whether it, you know, when he stopped yelling, but he'll probably find another place to start yelling. Um, there's very little listening going on. And I guess, I don't know how you, well, I do think. To listen, you have to. Um, well, the therapeutic approach is that 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 that's you know you have to have the desire to. That's the precondition for kind of any progress between two people is a conversation where they try to listen to each other, and you know that's all it is. That's what therapy is. That it's nothing. You know, you can make it mystical if you like, but it 
it's uh, if we could uh, somehow um, encourage people uh, to. It requires letting go of your own judgment, and for me, that was really, really difficult. Really difficult because I, I would, but the reward is that anytime someone sits in front of you, you think, "Oh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a jaded, cynical old hack, and I, I know what this person's going to say," and then they say something that you never thought they were going to say, you know, and and that's wow, I didn't think that you would say. <laughs> I don't know. There's something that. Really, if you're interested in stories, then everybody really genuinely does have a story that will blow your mind. Suzanne, I am I am both surprised and not surprised to hear you reflecting at that level. And I'm not surprised because I've spent 48 hours actually listening to interviews and reading more of you and getting to know a bit more of your work. But pr- prior to that, I think I had an impression of you that was basically someone who really liked to scrap and well, you yeah, know, was, true, was pretty thick-skinned. And, you know, there's, there's points reading your Twitter where I was like, Ooh, you know, it can be quite sharp-tongued. And the, the, I'm intrigued by how, the, how you conceive of that role as a columnist. You, oh, I, there's also a, um, something that I interviewed, underlined in an interview where you said, we are always in a culture war. Like this sense of, Yes, there is something about political debates that is about winning and losing, and it's important. Mm-hmm. And so talk to me more about that, because I think that slightly kind of spikier, basically, I've really enjoyed learning about the more reflective stuff underneath it, but the spikier side is also part of your, at least part of your public persona. Mm-hmm. What are you mm-hmm. trying to do there? When do you think it's a value? And do you sometimes regret it and think, oh, I should have pulled back there? Or do you think it has value in moving us forward? Yeah, people are always telling me that, <laughs> yeah, um, to tone it down, to, to not argue, to uh, uh, to be um, more passive, I guess. Um, you see, for me, that self-reflection and that anger are not, are not opposites. Anger is a very strong drive in me. I'm very angry about lots of things and I don't fear my own anger. I, I like my anger because I think it gets me out, out, out of bed in the morning, you know. Um, it's a, it, this is a, obviously a discussion that I have had during therapy because I hold on to it a, a lot. Um, do I regret things? Uh, I think I've said things that I probably weren't kind, um, but it, it, for me, I've never, I've never said anything to anybody. My own sort of, if if you like, my ethics around journalism, for instance, is I will attack anyone who can attack me back, but I would never attack a, a somebody who uh, a kind of a person who couldn't. So it's an attack on power. So I'm very um, in, interested in power, who has it, why they have it, and why they shouldn't have it. Um, and, you know, I think I can be as angry as I like, as long as 
I can also entertain. I mean, I think that's the other side of it is is to be like, you know, funny. Um, you know, I attacked, for instance, Naomi Wolf, who who's bloody barking mad, as far as I can see now. Total conspiracy theory. Um, but I made it, you know, tried to you know, make it funny as well. So um and certainly when it comes to feminism and women and the role of gender, you know, uh, I think we are always told that we are too angry and we should be nicer and we should be kinder and we should be this and we should be that. Um, and I think, no, we're going backwards. We've been going backwards for 10, 20 years. We should be um, angry. And if, you know, at the end of the day, my spikiness or whatever word people want to call it um, is, you know, it. you can block me. You don't have to read what I write. You can find someone much, much more, you know, to your taste. I mean, it's, but I don't think it takes much, you see, as to be cool, angry and um, a crazy sort of left-wing bitch. It, if you have an opinion, I mean, when I first started writing, when I first started writing, editors were saying, "Oh my God, you know, we we were always finding it hard to get women to write like this." And when I was an editor myself, which wasn't for very long, because I, that made me realise I wanted to write more than an edit, because they're very, very different skills, very different. Some people couldn't do both, but um, I kind of had the idea, like. Not even as a feminist, but I just thought, I guess half the people who write for me will be women and half the people will be men. Just That was just how I thought it would be. And no, not at all. What happens is that I would have an idea for a piece, I would phone up, I, I would phone around, I would find a renowned expert in whatever it was, phone them up. Often she would be a professor of blah, 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 and I'd say, write me this piece and I need it like now kind of thing. and. She's, I'm not sure if I'm the right person. I don't know if I can do this, blah, 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 blah. I haven't got the time or I can't do it that quickly. And I would uh, really try to persuade them. And in, then in the end, like five minutes later, I just phoned up a guy who I knew did not have that expertise and would just say, sure, I can do that. And that really shows you, you know, about front and confidence. And They're calling it the stuff. entitlement gap at the moment, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I so I always say to to women who want to write, you know, yeah, just say yes, and then put the phone down or yeah, turn off, and then scream. I mean, just pretend that you can do it, and then you might be able. You, then you will be able to do it. I mean, it it is fun, and it, it it's um, but also, you know, the stuff on Twitter or. Facebook or wherever it is, a lot of that's kind of performative, isn't it? And that's why a lot of journalists like it. I mean, and they're good at it or they're not good at it or they get into fights about things. I guess I'm always intrigued by, you know, I my interest is in this public conversation, how it shapes us. And whenever I talk to kind of particular columnists, sort of seven or eight columnists now, it's a, I mean, basically, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty earnest. <laughs> and that, I've worked at the Institute for a many programmes, but I was never a proper journalist. And probably because I'm too earnest to be a journalist. 
And it, and it, are you saying we're not honest? No, you are. Well, there's a difference between earnest and honest. You know, I, I am a bit too tortured, I think. But the raising the question of, like, the, the moral responsibility of any platform, really, yeah, feels like something that's just not... And actually, a few people have been like, I think if I start thinking about moral responsibility, I will clam up or close down because it's too it's too heavy and also there is a very strong ethical strand in a lot of journalists in terms of shining light on stuff and you know speaking truth to power it's not that you know I I feel like CJ Craven I'm often like defending journalists against everyone else for their brilliant brilliant role but that 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 it seems to attract very adversarial people who have quite a thick skin and quite like an argument. But I wonder if one of the ways that shapes our public conversations is that those of us, and not just me, but others, who who find that, you know, maybe spikes adrenaline more, that have a stronger threat response, they find conflict more, you know, in, in psychotherapeutic mm. terms, are bringing some baggage about conflict into that, then vacate the space. And that's part of what's shaping the fact that it's got quite bloody in places not that anyone's chose it or is any individual's fault but we formed it around temperaments mm. mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah that make that that makes sense I guess I see it in a slightly different way because I think I don't know whether columnists seek adversity I mean some do definitely and I mean I know that you know we could all write a column tomorrow that would get the most clicks it would have the word vagina in it it would have the word Israel in it you know I mean it's it's easy to do that but it's not necessary it's it's not satisfying to do it I would say the problem is um because I actually do think there is a moral responsibility definitely um it is this this presentation of the self as certain like it's very hard to write a column saying this is a really complicated issue and I'm not really sure here or I've changed my mind or I've changed my mind exactly or um or I made a mistake or mm, I mean because people want the role of the columnist is increasingly to sort of um, be a trusted voice through this sort of this barrage of information. And people don't really like to be told that the people that they look to for analysis don't know. Although, you know, in the last five last no, well, since, say, the financial crash, most political analysis has been wrong. I mean, that's, you know, people were wrong a lot about a lot of things, right? Um, They were wrong about, a lot of people were wrong about Trump, they were wrong about Brexit, they were wrong about Jeremy Corbyn. And it would would do us all good, and I include myself, to have a, a bit of humility about what, um, I think actually Stephen Bushman, he says, and I think he does a thing once a year at the end of the year where he looks back and says, oh, look, these are the things I got right and these are the things I got wrong. I mean, I like that. I like that. And um, But that comes back to the thing that you said right at the beginning, which is about forgiveness, isn't it? It's like we shouldn't expect journalists to be really better than, than anyone else. 
I'm going to finish with a question um, that I ask not everyone because I don't always remember, but most people, which is, uh, what have you learned about engaging, connecting with people who are different from you and who disagree with you? Lots of members, lots of people listening to the podcast will be you know, religious in various forms or spiritual, but not religious, or maybe exactly your shade of atheist, but a different political Mm-hmm. swing to you or have a different perspective from you on trans issues or gender or whatever it is. Um, but the po- the point of these conversations is to try and listen deeply to a range of voices to co- kind of complexify these boxes that we put people in of good, bad, enemy, friend, you know, problematic, not problematic, whatever it is. So, you, you know, you've had quite a year with navigating some of those things. Um, <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> what, if anything, have you learnt? What is some some wisdom if you feel you've gained any? that you could share? Actually, most people do not hold extreme views about most things. A few people do. So actually, the conversation in in real life is really, is, is much more nuanced than anything that you read or you see on social media for a start. I've never lost, for instance, I've never lost my friendship with trans people that I've known all my life or anything like that. Um, that most people see, you know, in any kind of face-to-face conversation, people just aren't as rude to each other or as... Um, yeah, as as combative as it as it can appear um there are I think you know there are a few people that are just like you just have to say the they they live in a sort of state of permanent arousal of of being outraged at everything you're probably not going to get very far with most of those people so don't waste your time but there are most a lot of people um I kind of learned actually when I, I went, worked for Mail on Sunday, which was a right wing newspaper, but I was allowed to do my kind of left wing feminist thing. Is that on most social issues, for instance, uh, people were pretty liberal. It, so it, uh, they might be voting Tory and fiscally conservative, but on because a lot of the things that people disagree about, whether it's gender or divorce or. Um, yeah, abortion, homosexuality, uh, so-called Middle England, I don't even know if that exists, but most families are touched by this in some way. So you can have the big political conversation about, I don't agree with that and I don't agree with this. And uh, same with the issues around racism. Um, But most families are touched by it Um, and their personal experience will change how people think. Um, So if you can sort of kind of connect on that level of shared experience, even from different, from uh, starting from different viewpoints um, uh, and listen to each other, that is possible to build bridges. And I would say, for instance, I mean, on this because I have a clearly to think about but for me the transition and like the trans and uh, I'm not transphobic at all I just want to stand up for women's rights um, this is not at all an irresolvable issue I think it's actually quite a resolvable one which is why I'm sort of sad it's got the way it has because um, 
you know, there are some things, there are some conflicts in the world, Israel, Palestine, for instance, that, you know, just seem intractable. But this is, you know, we must make sure that this minority of people who want to uh, identify in a certain way have the best healthcare and are not discriminated against. And at the same time, we want to protect women's rights based on on uh, their sex. I I don't think these are kind of un that's unbridgeable. And I think that the most people, when I speak to them, don't think that either. And are in the, you know, we can meet, we can meet in the middle. Um. So that's where I I keep hope the one the one issue and also people constantly surprise you don't don't they because don't you remember all coming up through brexit it was immigration immigration all the horrible races blah 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 any poll now shows you that people actually immigration isn't as important to them they have changed their minds i don't know that something's happening no. It's not like it's all got suddenly grey. It hasn't. But um, you have to look at where people change their minds because that's where you, who would have thought, you know, who would have thought 40 years ago that we would be so much more comfortable with, with say, homosexuality, you know. Um, And, but the other thing is... um, just to put in a bit of my spikiness for you at the end, with women's rights, do not take them for granted. We can go backwards. So keep fighting. Suzanne Moore, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Dam for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk. 